I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We would like to offer our respects to the traditional owners of all generations upon whose lands this podcast has been created. We'd also like to acknowledge any First Nations listeners. One thing I always say is, particularly, you know, the first draft, do not censor yourself. There's enough sensorial voices and institutions in our world that are going to do that. You're not going to actually get to what is actually the most powerful part of your story if there's a voice in your head going I can't write that I can't do that I can't say that hello and welcome to the new writers room a podcast for emerging writers we're your hosts for the show my name is Caitlin Chang and I'm editor at SBS Voices and my name is Sarah Malik, and I am a senior writer and presenter at SBS Voices. So today we have some very exciting news to share, which is that the SBS Emerging Writers Competition is back for its third year. And in even more exciting news, our judges this year will be acclaimed Australian authors Alice Pung and Christos Cholkis. Maybe you've heard of them, Sarah. You know, yeah, I think they're they're pretty up and coming. Yeah, I think that I might have heard of them (laughs) vaguely, you know. No, honestly, we are so excited to have their expertise this year. And this year's theme is emergence, which is a really great theme, I think, um, because it can be interpreted in so many different ways. What's really exciting about this year is that while we are looking for memoir entries again, Writers are actually free to fictionalise elements of their own stories. Yeah, that's right, Sarah, and it should broaden the potential for some amazing entries this year. Now, there's also a prize pool of $10,000 with $5,000 going to the first prize and the chance to be published in our next anthology with Hardy Grant Books. And now some dates to just mark in your calendars. Entries for the competition open on August 16th and close on September 13th. So if you want to find out more info, head to sbs.com.au forward slash writers. That's some serious cash. Yeah. (laughs) So today we're so excited to be speaking to one of our competition judges, Christos Schalkes. Christos is a playwright, essayist and screenwriter. He is the author of seven novels, including Loaded, The Jesus Man and Dead Europe. His novel, The Slap, was shortlisted for the 2009 Miles Franklin Literary Award, longlisted for the 2010 Man Booker Prize, and won a host of other awards. His sixth novel, Damascus, won the 2019 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction, and his latest novel is Seven and a Half, which has also been longlisted for this year's Miles Franklin Literary Award. And naturally, we are extremely thrilled that he is joining us today. Welcome, Christos. Oh, you're very kind. Christos, um, you've spoken of being a kid of working class Greek parents and your dad kind of getting paid at the factory on Thursday and using that money to buy you books. What was your relationship with books as a child? Uh, my One of my first loves. I was really lucky. I, I, I do that memory of my father buying me books every week. He and my mother were so excited that I was a reader. I always uh, laugh and say English is my second language when I get bad reviews. <laughs> uh, but 
because <laughs> uh, I grew up in a very, uh, it was a very migrant community in inner city Melbourne, and I thought the language that people spoke in Australia was Greek. And if it wasn't Greek, then I thought it was Italian. <laughs> uh, my first year at primary school, I was put in a class with the migrant and refugee kids. I remember that quite strongly. There were some Greeks, some Turkish kids and some Lebanese kids because I didn't know any English. And so I think that was a kind of gift in retrospect because I learned to read from the ground up. And once I discovered reading and I discovered that you could disappear in the page, it's never been abandoned. Dad, in a way, gave me the love of reading because he would buy me those books. Mum also gave me a love of cinema, which I think was also a constant, has been a constant in my life. She loved the movies and we would go every week. Uh, back in those days, there were Greek cinemas that they would play Greek movies. And we would go most weekends and it would always be a comedy and then a really intense melodrama. <laughs> she would go with me to the cinema and I would translate for her. I think in that act of translation, I think I learned something about the beauty of words and and how you could use words and how you could tell story through words. That's so lovely that your parents both kind of fostered two of your great loves, you know, literature and writing and film. And a lot of our writers and listeners, you know, come from migrant backgrounds where English isn't the first language that they're speaking at home. And for your parents who couldn't read English, you know, being a writer in Australia at least is probably not something that was easily accessible to them. When did you realise that perhaps being a writer and pursuing the arts was something that you could do and maybe, hey, this is for me? Uh, Mom has a great story. I, I have a memory of the spot. It was on a tram spot in a suburb called Fitzroy, which was very close to where I grew up, and we were waiting for the tram to get us back to Richmond. And she said I was 10 and that I looked up at her and said, Mama, I'm going to be a writer, and that her first thought was, oh, my God, he's going to die penniless. (laughs) (laughs) I was aware that I wanted to do something with books from really, really early on. It's not like it's uh, one specific moment in time. It just seemed to be because I did love literature, I just knew that I wanted to be around books for the rest of my life. But as a lot of your listeners would, coming from migrant backgrounds or refugee family backgrounds, that it wasn't part of my world. I didn't grow up in a world where I knew writers, where my folks knew writers or, or filmmakers or, or artists or theatre people. And I think there was a sense of, that's not available to me. You have to um, come from a particular world to be able to do that. I had in year nine and then subsequently in my final year of high school a teacher in in English called uh, Yaroslav Javier who was a Czech immigrant and he saw that I loved reading and he introduced me to some of the great novels of the European tradition. I remember him giving me Stendhal, The Red and the Black. I remember him giving me Flaubert. I remember him giving me Tolstoy. And he encouraged me in reading, clearly, but also encouraged me to believe that I could write. Mm. The experience of class and writing is one that, that that's constantly uh, stayed with me and I think about that notion of being the imposter, that you don't really belong to this world. It took a long, long time to shrug that off. 
Mm. I think. And I, when I've talked to other writers from migrant backgrounds or working class backgrounds, that, that keeps coming up, that, you know, do we belong here? Mm. I think a lot of our listeners are from kind of, you know, places which don't have access to the arts and and I think a lot of what you, your experience brought to your work is this innate rebelliousness, this distrust of institutions, this intimate understanding of what it means to be an outsider. And that's something I see in so many of your characters, like even in the slap, like Bilal is like my favorite character. Um, so I guess what's your advice to writers who do feel that and how you can use all that and that can actually be a fuel and something that can actually inspire your writing rather than being a disadvantage? I was really lucky I had a teacher who led me to the great works of literature, I guess within the European tradition back then. But through that European tradition, I started reading Asian literature and Latin American literature from that curiosity. And to not forget that curiosity, to just realise that there's the pleasure that you get from reading or seeing a film or seeing a a work of art, going to the theatre, to enjoy that pleasure, that's part of it, but also to not be afraid of working hard to understand a book or to understand a film or to understand a piece, that that was, and that that I owe really to what that moment you talked about right at the beginning, Sarah, to my dad, because he didn't read English. You know, he would buy an Enid Blyton, right, or he would buy a Dickens because he was on those trestle tables, which were the, the, the bargain books. <laughs> But he also got me, I still remember that, Henry Miller. You know, he got me really difficult books. There's no way I'm going to pretend that I understood them, right, at that age. But what it did is it opened my sense that actually sometimes the great works of art require a commitment from you to actually sometimes be confused, sometimes be scared, sometimes be angry, sometimes be bored. I call... Uh, writing an apprenticeship that doesn't end and where we learn our craft is through reading. That hasn't gone away. I'm still excited every time I read a piece of fiction that does something different or opens my eyes to the way people live in the world that is so very different from myself. I'm not going to pretend I'm an outsider, but as a young migrant's son, as a queer teenager, I of course, was drawn to books that spoke about people living on the margins or people living in the shadows or people who were still trying to find out their place in the world, the, the, the outsider. And I think that's one of the great gifts of literature for me is that it made me realise I'm not alone. And to do that is to keep searching. And the other thing I would say to people listening is the gift of language that those of us who have who come from non-English speaking backgrounds, I'm really glad I, I had Greek. Mm-hmm. One, because it means that I can read in Greek, but it also opens you as a reader to the exploration of other ways of crafting words, of thinking about how words happen, how sometimes an emotional register in Greek is very different to an emotional register in English. Mm. I didn't realise it back when I was an adolescent and and, and a youth, but that's been a gift to be able to think how words work in a different language. Christos, a lot of our writers and the people entering this competition have kind of never written anything before, have at least never been published. Our winner last year, she that was her first 
time writing a piece of prose, which was quite amazing. And I guess it's quite, it's quite nerve wracking, the idea of having you and Alice Pung, you know, reading these pieces. Do you still relate to that feeling, I guess, of having your work critiqued? A bad review or a miss, you know, someone misunderstanding what you do. Rejection, they they stink. But Mm. if you want to do this, you have to be prepared for that. I would say, Make sure you have really good people around you. <laughs> I remember a cousin of mine just going, you know, I was after my first book came out and there was been some negative reviews. And he went, Christos, you've written how many words are there? 65,000 words. I haven't written 200 words in my life. <laughs> you know, be proud of that. And that was a lovely, lovely thing that Nick said to me, right? You know, yeah. just like it's a brave thing. It's a, to commit your thoughts, ideas, passion to the page. So don't forget that. And we all do have. A story to tell and someone entering this competition may be someone who wants to do what I'm doing which is right for the rest of my life but there may be also people who have a story to tell and it's important to get that story out and they may decide for whatever reason that that's not the vocation or the path in life they want to choose but getting that story out is important and this is an opportunity to tell that story I love Alice. I've loved her writing for a long time. I think she's one of the great souls in in Australian, in world literature, actually. Um, And I guess to say, trust us that we are, we're just seeking a voice. You know, we're going to respond to the voice that is on the page. And because we're not the same people and our experiences aren't identical, but we both understand something about migration We both understand something about class and, you know, we're going to read with that understanding. Mm. I'm saying to people, don't be scared, but there's something about the first book and the first stories I I wrote. There's a rawness there because I was finding my voice. Back in the day when I was writing Loaded, my first novel, I don't know if I can do this and I don't know if once I've done it if I can do it again, but I know I want to give it a try. That's the important thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that advice because, you know, for a lot of our, our listeners and us, you know, you are like on Mount Olympus. <laughs> you are the, the writer. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very intimidating. And so, so I guess it's really heartening to know, you know, you are also a beginner and you also fretted about that first book. I was wondering if you could go back to Loaded and, you know, you were 30 years old. What was that like for you to get that published and you know, how much agony, procrastination and fear and all of that went into that. And, um, yeah, what was that like? I was working a job I loved. Uh, it was called the State Film Centre, which was an archive of film and video. And I remember getting the call that it was published and I think I screamed so <laughs> loudly that everyone came out of the offices. <laughs> I have to say that I'd been writing short stories and very I'd actually come across the writing of a writer called George Papaelinas, who was a, a generation older than I am. He had written uh, some beautiful s- short stories and he had also was judging competitions for what was then called, I think it was like multicultural writing. And George was one of the first people who responded to my short stories and that's really important. This is why I think prizes like this one are important because there's where are the spaces where someone who doesn't know this world, I had no experience of the literary world, a very, very minimal experience of the literary world, 
and George reached out. He gave me a hand. And I think Alice and I probably feel a sense of responsibility to do that, to just lend a hand in terms of, of younger writers. So I had this job I loved, but I wasn't happy because I knew that I wanted to write a book. I, I remember going home one afternoon after work and sitting down with Wayne and, and saying, I would really like to give this a try, but for me to give this a try means going down part-time. Hmm. And bless him because he's such a lovely man. He said, Chris, of course, we'll do that. We'll make that work. That's actually not a small thing because in making that decision, it means how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay the rent? It was a consequence for him as well. And, again, I'm deeply grateful that he took that risk along with me because he he loved me. You know, he loves me and he knew that that was what was going to make me happy and I had two and a half days where I was working and then two and a half days where I uh, sat down and started writing. I spoke to my friends and I spoke to my family and I said, I know it doesn't seem like work, and I'm putting that in quotation marks because I'm not getting paid for it. If I'm going to do this seriously, I have to treat it as work. So, of course, ring me if you're in dire straits, but don't assume because Christos isn't at work work I can go out for a coffee. I was very clear that I was going to sit down. Uh, you know how old I am, guys? I would sit down in front of the typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> and I started work on, on the book that became loaded. Wow. I said to myself, try and write on the days that you're working, try and write 1,500 words a day. Sometimes it's a struggle to get to those words and you know that you're going to delete all of them. It is work and you learn what it is to write in the process of writing. So that those are the two, for me, it's reading teaches you how to write and then the act of writing itself teaches you how to write. When were you able to kind of stop the part-time work and make the jump to writing full-time as your job and how did that feel? That felt uh, like the, 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 the most enormous privilege in the world, but that only happened with the fourth novel. Um, wow. So I was in my probably my early to middle 40s and I was working again. So they'd been loaded, then there was The Jesus Man and Dead Europe. I was working uh, at that time part-time as a vet nurse. A friend was a vet veterinarian. Um, that's why the two of the characters are, well, one of the characters is a vet nurse and one is a vet in the slap. Yeah. And I was working on the slap while doing that, and I, I worked at uh, at my friend's vet clinic for ages, and I loved doing it. It was, uh, again, three days a week, and I thought that was going to be my life, and I was quite happy with that. And Dead Europe, the, the previous novel, was a long time coming. It took seven years. It was a very difficult novel. I had astonishing success with Loaded. It was made into a wonderful film by Anna Kokinos called Head On. So it was like a golden period and then there was a difficult second album, <laughs> The Jesus Man, and that wasn't uh, a success in, that, in those terms. But I knew that I wanted to write and that's what I'm, I meant to people listening. You have to develop that tougher skin to go mm. part of what you have to deal with is failure. And then the slap happened and the slap felt like, I mean, I, I worked really hard on it, don't get me wrong, but compared to Dead Europe, it felt like a bit of a breeze. It was just me going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write something contemporary. I'm going to write something about Australia now. I just wanted to say something about what we were like as a nation, about racism and about 
people like myself moving from a migrant working class life into a middle class life. So I was gobsmacked when the success happened with the slab. But what it gave me was a first time in our lives, because it's my life and Wayne's life together, a financial freedom. That I'm completely grateful for that. I was just wondering, you know, just personally, what is it like for you to, I guess, come from this background and also now be in this really rarefied world? I didn't know what it meant to have money. I kind of had a okay, intellectual sense of it, but it wasn't until the slap that I just went, oh, my God, you know, this is what it, you know, not having to panic when the rent or mortgage is due, mm. just which is most people's experience. Not like it, it doesn't have to be a major panic, but you're just thinking about that month and, you know, how I'm going to get there. And because I know what that is, to not have that, and because I know what my parents went through in terms of migration, working in factories and working as cleaners and doing that so their children could have something called an education, which was unavailable to them. They came from a place and a time, civil war in Greece, uh, the dowry system, you know, which was a, a terrible, terrible handicap for, for women in, in Greece. They just did not have that opportunity and they sacrificed incredibly hard to make that possible for my brother and I. And I think it's that honouring of that sacrifice that I hope I never forget and I'm touching wood as I... <laughs> As I say that, because I think that is that is really important to me, to keep me grounded, I think. Mm. I remember even back in the day of going to university, my father came out with a lovely, lovely man who I call Theo, uncle, right? We're, we're not blood related, but he, you know, he's been part of my life uh, since I was born because he's, he was one of my, my dad's best friends. And he, first day I went to Melbourne Uni, he drove me in he stopped the car and he turned to me and he pointed to one of the buildings and he said you know I built I, I built that I was he was one of the builders when oh he um, came this would have been in the 60s that he worked on that building and he gave me the most gentle loving tender slap on the on the cheek which was to say don't you ever forget it because he said mm-hmm. you're the first of our children to go there and we're really proud of you but don't forget us and that has always stayed with me always stayed with me. That's That's so so special. It makes me teary. (laughs) That's beautiful. In a lot of your work, obviously, kind of Greek culture pops up a lot and it clearly informs a lot of your storytelling and you draw on a lot of what feels like a lot of memories. How do you kind of, I guess, do that, you know, unearth these memories of your childhood and growing up and put them into story? Is it Do you just have an amazing memory or do you take notes or do you talk to other people? The last novel I wrote, Seven and a Half, is is really an an attempt to understand that process and Mm. it is. But I I keep a journal that I write in. That's a constant in my life. So that that journal is, is a resource that I use to go back into. There's a beautiful word that Doris Lessing, the writer, uses called fugging. Which she says is those is that time when, if you were to walk into the study or the lounge room and see me, you're going, "Oh, Christos isn't doing anything, right? He's just looking out the window." <laughs> but actually, that fugging time is when you're actually recalling. 
So you're using memory. You're thinking about an incident that you just saw maybe a few hours ago on the tram or the train, and it starts feeding into the story you want to tell. So there's there's like that deep work of memory that creates stories. And this is part of Seven and a Half. The metaphor I use in that novel is uh, the descent into Hades, not hell because hell's a different concept. Hades, the ancient Greek concept of going deep into the underworld, which is where memories and desires and fears and terrors lie, right? And you have to find a way to access that as a writer. The other thing, really, really simple, is walk, is to walk. I think that is part of my process, really, that uh, every day I start with a walk before I, I start work. It's on that walk that you muse over what is it you want to write, what is it you want to say, what are the words you want to use. We've all got these files, let's call them, of memory there in our mind, in our consciousness, and our world at the moment is so full of distractions that it's hard to find a space to sit with them. And I think that for me, that walking time, what lesson called fugging time is, is what you need to do. One of my nieces calls me Grandpa Simpson because I, I'm so agnostic when it comes to technology and social media. But I think that is, for me, one of the things that I am very careful about how I use that technology because it's so easy. Something as simple as just sitting for five minutes and not looking at your phone, right? I wonder how much of the protagonist in Seven and a Half, like his process, I wonder how much of that informs or mirrors your own creative process. I just said every day I'm going to wake up and the first thing I'm going to do is work on this book and I'm going to try and write at least 800 words a day on this book and see where it takes me. And so the truth is in the book in terms of what the process of writing is. The lie that I'm talking about is it's also me as a writer fashioning a story about how writing happens, right? And it's it's not me just spilling my guts out on the page because I'm reworking it and I'm redrafting it and I'm, I'm working out how to tell the stories and I'm working out how do I go into Hades without burning, you know, because you have to learn skills to not go to be overwhelmed by memory because some of our memories are not good, are, are harsh. So you've got to learn skills about how you deal with that. And even though I'm not a religious person, I think one of the things I did with Seven and a Half is that I gave myself a day of rest and it was like that will be a day of rest where I don't have to immerse myself in some of those worlds that are really difficult. You know, th those are some of the ways you protect yourself. Sometimes the hardest thing about writing is being able to go, I think I'm going to put this thing away because it's not working yeah, or it hasn't found its right form. And that's one of the hardest things to do because all you can think of is are the hours you spent working on it. But there are, there's a ruthlessness there that you have to learn as well, I think, mm. to just go, for whatever reason, this story isn't happening. It's hard yeah. to let go of those words though. <laughs> Like, oh. oh god, yeah. <laughs> but that, that that having said that, they're there. When I'm working on the computer, I delete, but so, you know, I keep a file of things that I've deleted mm. that are there just in case, because you never know. You may go back to it in ten years or five years or seven months and go, 
actually, that wasn't working, but that character, she's still speaking to me or I still hear her, so there's something I need to do there. That's great advice. You know, sometimes when I do, and we all do get blocked, and we think, oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm just writing crap, 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 crap. It's not coming, it's not coming. Sometimes I will go and see a film. I will go and visit a gallery. It's, it's astonishing how seeing something beautiful or striking or sublime or frightening in the truest sense, in another medium, actually jogs your your imagination. Yeah. That's always been a really important part of the process as well for me. I wanted to ask you, what made you say yes to being a judge in this year's competition? I do adore Alice Pong, you know, <laughs> and and I just knew with Alice involved that it would be a wonderful experience. But I do think that there is something about this prize that's really important to me because I have a responsibility and it's something I wear with great lightness because it's actually a joy that I come from a world and a background that facilitated me being able to write in particular ways so that I can be part of responding to writing that understands that that comes not from the same world because time has passes you know I'm not going to pretend the experience of you know the Christos Cholkis in 1997 is the writer, for example, writing now. But I do think that there is something about wanting to honour the work that comes from spaces that are not the mainstream of Australian literature Literature is something that I I want to be part of. Okay, look, Christos, you write some very sexy books. Let's not lie. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, sex, the body, the appetites, desire. I mean, your books, you could eat your books. It's just not just reading them. It's like you feel them. They're our full body experience. Your characters are complicated and they're intense and they don't always do the right things. So what's your advice to emerging writers to just be unleashed? Okay, one thing I always say is particularly, you know, the first draft, do not censor yourself. You know, there's enough sensorial voices and um, institutions in our world that are going to do that. You're not going to actually get to what is actually the most powerful part of your story if you're if there's a voice in your head going, I can't write that, I can't do that, I can't say that. And it's hard. Part of it is saying to yourself, this first draft, I'm not going to think about what my mum is going to think. I'm not going to think about what my lover's going to think. I'm not going to think about maybe what my child is going to think. But to actually get to that power that is about an individual voice telling a story in a way we've not heard before, you've got to do it fearlessly. In your first draft, forget it. Be not scared of anyone and write it for yourself. Now, in the redrafting, in the conversations, you may go, look, I don't want to use that word or I don't want that scene is complicated for whatever reasons, but you're not going to be able to make that decision until you've actually written it, until you've you've got it on the page. And in terms of the question, Sarah, I do think there is culture and the world has changed, of course, in the time. But, you know, I was beginning to read and I was beginning to write and deal with a world in which I felt a real strong sense of shame and confusion around sexuality and the body because being queer was, it it felt so difficult and overwhelming and frightening 
and I was conscious of the hurt that it was going to cause inevitably. And again, lots of people listening to this, if you are, you know, if you are queer, you, you understand that. We, we come from families that deeply love us but also have their traditions, have their, their sense of what is the path they want you to, to walk in this world. And so that's a struggle. That's, that's going to be a struggle and hopefully it's easier with time. What saved me was reading and reading books that were unafraid of that honesty about sexuality, about the body, about shame, about fear, and going, oh, my God, I'm not alone. The other thing I always say, right, we've got our senses, and that's what we do as writers. So it's not only our eyes, it's not only our ears, it's our smell, it's our touch. It's That's how we respond to the world. Everyone says I write a lot about smell, and it's like, well, because we live in a world where that is one of the dominant senses. And let's use it. <laughs> let's 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 write about what it means to be in the world. We we we're conscious that we've already taken up so much of your precious time. So we are so grateful, uh, and we're just yeah, we're so grateful to have you on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. So if you're looking for some inspiration for your entry, you can read the top 30 entries from last year in the new SBS anthology, Between Two Worlds, which is published by Heidi Grant and is out August 3. Don't forget the 2022 SBS Emerging Writers Competition is open for entries on August 16 and closes on September 13. Write on the theme of emergence for your chance to be awarded the $5,000 first place prize. for second place or two runners-up prizes of $1,000. The top entries will be published in an anthology by Heidi Grant. So if you want to find out more info, head to sbs.com.au slash writers. Make sure you follow the New Writers Room podcast because soon we will be dropping new episodes. In our next episode, we hear from fellow SBS Emerging Writers Competition judge Alice Pung whose book 100 Days was recently shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award. Don't think of your audience, or if you are to think of your audience, don't think of a big group of people. Think of a singular person that you're writing to and make them very specific. And that will make sure that your writing is honed in and completely razor sharp in focus. The New Writers' Room is produced by Caitlin Chang and Sarah Malik with audio production by Jeremy Wilmot. Our executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Teutsch. For regular updates, you can find SBS Voices on Facebook and on Twitter.